Hi, Pastor Rob here from City East Church and NTL Ministries. This sermon series is called Uncovering Religion. We live in a day where the world is saturated with contradictory faiths and beliefs. Can they all be right? Are they all wrong? As Christians, it is imperative that we understand something of what these religions teach and believe so that we can accurately discern right from wrong. Peter 3, verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has, has been since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and with water. By water, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. What a powerful word. But in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And we are living in these days when scoffers are here, and they're following their own evil desires. So let's pray. Lord, we commit this time to you now. I, I commit this sermon to you. And, and Lord, I ask that you would do something with this message to reach all the hearts of everyone here, but also the hearts of those uh, watching on YouTube and those uh, listening via podcast. I pray that this word will come forth and, and help them to see that there is a God. There is a God that has hope and can give hope. Something that this postmodern world has none of. And uh, the atheistic view of life has none of. And so, Lord, I do pray that you will just help this sermon to be powerful and effective in your mighty name and help me to say the right things and uh, hold my tongue if I was to say anything that uh, you would not have me say today. So I commit this sermon to you, Father, uh, through Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are living in a day among a people within a culture that fulfills many prophecies in the Bible which describe the kind of world which is to exist during the last days. We are living in a day when Bible prophecy is being fulfilled all around us. And if you just open your eyes and look, you can see it. It's right before us. Have a listen to this prophecy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5. He says, Paul says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, 
unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, the new age, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them. There's many religions out there that will claim to be holy, having a form of godliness, but their actions speak louder than words. And there's many people, and this prophecy is being fulfilled in this time, where people are disobedient to their parents. It's, it's pretty well common now to see kids being disobedient to their parents, isn't it? You know, anytime you go to anywhere where there's kids and families, there's always a table where you'll go, why doesn't the father just get up and say something to the kid? Why is he letting his kids run amok? And the kids are just standing there swearing at their parents. You know, we see it all the time in so many households. So it's we are living in these days. Ravi Zacharias commented, he said, our generation has nothing to look forward to but oblivion. And what he means by that is, is according to the, the mindset of this modern people, modern culture, if, if atheism is the truth, then all the modern person has to look forward to is oblivion. The entailments of this are terrifying. Cloning, drugs, AIDS, suicide, child pornography, terrorism, and a host of other problems that are heartbreaking. And that's because of the way we think our culture has just is digressing terribly. And um, we, we're living among a pagan culture now. We're living in a hedonistic culture, as I prayed earlier on. Hedonism is just basically living for pleasure. You know, even Christians, we all sort of been sucked into that, you know, pleasure first. You know, what do you want to do tonight? What's fun to do? Should we go to the cinema? No, should we go out to dinner? Should we go to a friend's house? Should we go and play Xbox? Pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Always searching for pleasure. I'm going to draw on Pastor Neil Ryan's sermon. He, He said a sermon a few years ago called Hope in a Postmodern World. And if you can, if you can get your hands on that sermon, please do. It's he, Pastor Neil Ryan uh, preaches at the only Park Baptist Church. He preached a sermon. He said it was one of the only sermons in years that the congregation asked him to preach again a few months later. And uh, I'm going to draw from that. There was the pre-modern world, which was between 500 AD and 1500 AD. And that was where religion was the source of authority. At that time, Catholicism was ruling the world, in a sense, um, and the Orthodox Church and so on. But Catholicism was the real power holder. The common person did not have access to to the divine except through intermediaries who often held positions of power. And at that time, tradition was unshakable and sacred. Now, one of the main reasons for this hold of that, of that period, they call it the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, was because there was no translations of the Bible in the common language. So the common person could not read the Bible for himself. The only way he had access to that knowledge is through listening to what the priests were teaching from, from the pulpit. And a lot of that was done in Latin, so no one knew, uh, m- many common people didn't know Latin, so really they got nothing out of it. And so what the priest then would have the control was to say, do this, do this, do this, and they would just do it because there was no other source of knowledge for them to draw from. Then we had the modern world, which was from 1500 to 2000. 
uh, in the modern world, knowledge and science became the source of truth and reality. You know, we have the Renaissance and, and the Enlightenment period, which was where knowledge and science became the source of truth and reality. God receded into the background. And that opened the way for Enlightenment, Industrial Revolution, Darwinian Evolution Theory, etc. It was the birth of a world where man believes he can master the universe. You know, during that period we had the great composers, you know, Bach and Mozart and some of the great um, artists and, uh, you know, Leonardo da Vinci and, you know, coming up with incredible inventions and designs. So it was, in a sense, the Bible was written into the common language. We drew from that, but very quickly they turned from that through the inspiration that was received, obviously this is what I believe, and started to turn to science and, and other things because of the intellectual stimulation that they were receiving from that. And therefore all of these other wonderful things started to emerge. But in all of that, there was a lot of rejection of God. And so the modern era, the modern world was quite a, uh, in some ways there was some, a lot of good things, but there was a lot of bad mixed in with that. It also led to uh, colonialism and great explorers, uh, explorers like Columbus, Cook and Mawson, as well as it also, uh, we saw a, a rise in Christian missions where Christians were sending out missionary groups to different parts of the world. You know, so a lot of really good things were done uh, in that period. Right, so then we have the 20th century. With the advent of World War I, the, which was called the War to End All Wars, closely followed by World War II and the Holocaust, with that occurrence, plus terrible genocides and also democides. Um, dem a democide is murder of people by a government. And you, you, you see that, you know, well expressed in the, uh, under the leadership of Stalin and other communist dictators. If you look up the statistics of communist dictators and the atrocities they've committed, it's, it's mind-blowing. The total of the communistic democides are estimated to be 110 million uh, between 1900 and 1987. And that pales the total battle dead, which was estimated at 38 million. Now, these are estimations. It's very hard to get exact numbers. But just 110 million murders by governments compared to 38 million which, who died in battle. It's a big, big difference, isn't it? The 20th century, which they've has been pun the most murderous century in history, came along, and modernism and its optimism, which was the you know all the stimulation that came with the modern world, uh, was ruined by the age-old problem of evil. So, Parson Neil Ryan defines postmodernism for us. Uh, in postmodernism, there's no single defining source for truth or reality beyond the individual. So it's what you define as true is true for you, and that's the end of it. So that you'll hear people, when you're telling them about Jesus, they'll say, hey, that's true for you, but that's not true for me. Even though we know there's only one door, one gate in heaven, and we know that's in Christ, they'll say, no, I've got my truth, and that's true for me, and I'm not going to push that on you, and you shouldn't push your truth uh, on me. But... What the problem with that is there is only one truth. <laughs> There's not lots and lots and lots of different truths, is there? There's one truth. And if truth is, is to be found in Christ, 
then anything that denies that is an untruth. That's according to the Bible, according to Scripture. So that's where the problem lies. It's with, we believe this is the authentic word of God. Someone else will believe it's not the authentic word of God. Therefore, we can say, hey, the Bible says this, all we want, but they're just going to say, doesn't matter what the Bible says because I don't believe in the Bible. I don't think it is truth. So that, that is a dilemma. That is a real dilemma that we face in this modern world. So the only breakthrough, I believe, is prayer. We've got to pray this one through so that people will start to realize that <clears throat> their opinions or, or, or concepts of truth have no hope. There is no hope in their concepts of truth, and we'll go into this in a bit. The optimism of the modern world was replaced by skepticism, uh, relativism, uh, mysticism. And what, what it is is basically everything's mystical and unknowable. So an incapacity to know anything with certainty. So that's what they believe. There is no truth, no defining source for truth or reality in this world. Traditional views of God are said to be like silly old dreams. But because religion abhors a vacuum, we have had the rise of spirituality in the form of neo-pantheism and neo-gnosticism. Uh, and I just added that this is like, like a rise in the new age and a rise in cults. Everyone wants spirituality, but they don't want God. They all want to be spiritual. They all want to feel like they have this esoteric experience, but they don't want to bow to a God. They want to live life on their terms, even if it harms someone else. It doesn't matter. Look at the riots that happened in England. That was like hey, we can do what we want. Let's just break into the shops. Let's steal all these things. It doesn't matter if the guy who owns that shop is a hardworking person that has worked so hard, he's probably for his whole life to get his shop to that level, and then they decide, we're going to go and have a, a, a shopping spree for free. We're going to take everything we want because we have a right to that because we are the, we've been badly treated by our government even though it harmed the family that owned that shop. And probably how many people got beaten up on the way. You know, that's my TV. No, that's mine. Whack. So that now they're hurting each other to steal a TV. You know, and so that's pretty well what all of this postmodernism, what that's leading to is these sorts of things occurring all over the earth all the time. Postmodernists are suspicious of truth claims because there is no absolute truth. So if anyone comes to a postmodernist and says, I know the truth, and the truth is in Christ. They're suspicious of you. They'll straight away start to find fault with you. They'll start to say bad things about you because, hang on, you're a holder of truth, and there is no such thing as absolute truth, according to a postmodernist. And most people you know, in, who reject Jesus are postmodernists to a degree, or they live in a postmodern society or a postmodern culture. Therefore, they are adopting these types of mindsets. So spirituality for a postmodernist is whatever works for you. Craft your own faith, a bit of Buddhism, a bit of Reiki, combined with some Scientology and maybe a bit of Catholicism, just so I've got a bit of tradition there as well. So mix it all together, and I'm the perfect truth holder for me, but I'm not going to push my truth on you, but I might recommend a bit. You know, Reiki's not too bad. <laughs> so hope in a postmodern world. So where do you find hope in a postmodern world? 
when truth claims are viciously attacked and rejected. So someone comes to you and tells you about the Bible or someone comes to postmodernists and tells you about the Bible and tells you about Jesus and they, they will just viciously reject you. So where are those people who re- reject you going to go to find hope and a, a future in this world? Because as we found, as we study the other religions of this world, there's no hope in them. We've gone through many of them, haven't we? How many of them give you hope for something better than this? You know, Hindus, what hope do they have? If they don't live a totally righteous life, they're going to have to get back on the karmic wheel. And they're going to have to go through this whole thing again. And if the world keeps getting worse, that means they're going to keep getting reincarnated into a worse world. And if the world goes on for another 10,000 years and gets progressively worse from this, they're going to be born into worlds where the moment they get here, they're just sacrificed in a fire. (laughs) And then born again and thrown back somewhere else and eaten by wolves or something. You know, the reincarnation is not a hope. It's a curse. What about Islam? Where are they going to find hope? They, can, they don't know if they're saved. A Muslim does not know if they're saved. They don't know until they get to heaven and are judged. And if they're found wanting on the scales, they're going to be thrown into hell. So every Muslim is fearing hell because they assume they're going to go there. Their conscience declares to them, their subconscious declares to them they're going to hell. Because how can you be totally righteous in this world where, where terrible things are done daily? And we are part of that, aren't we? So when the overwhelmingly dominant mindset of the modern culture is atheism, and humanism, where do you go to find hope? Ravi Zacharias stated, the questions about death demand answers, but atheism has none, because there is no heaven to be gained and no hell to be shunned. Life finishes with the last heartbeat. All relationships are severed. All endeavors are ended. The arms of justice is cut short. Eternity in the heart has been swallowed up by the finality of experience. There is nothing to fear or to hope for, no God to meet, no hope to anticipate. All is truly and ultimately ended. The atheist is left with no reason for being, no morality to espouse, no meaning to life, and no hope beyond the grave. The absence of a future hope has an amazing capacity to reach into the present and eat away at the structure of life as termites would a giant wooden foundation. And that last sentence, the absence of a future hope. An atheist has no future hope of an afterlife. There is zero afterlife in their minds. And that concept alone, that hope alone, has an amazing capacity to reach into the present, reach into your day now, and eat away at the structure of life as termites would a giant wooden foundation. Truth is not what is important to this postmodern culture that we live in. Only happiness and pleasure and getting everything that you want. That's really it, isn't it? And you know, when I'm saying this, it's so easy to identify with, isn't it? Because we're seeing it every day. All people want is happiness. Life to me is not about happiness. It's about living and moving in the truth. Living and moving in Christ. And, and sacrificing my happiness sometimes for the sake of others. 
And it should be that way for all of us. And I'm not saying that all atheists, that's all that is hung up on happiness because a lot of them, you know, want other things as well. I'm not trying to say they don't have morals. But all I'm trying to say is where do they get their moral code from? It doesn't happen by chance. Morals, the Bible says that the law is written on the hearts of men. He's written them on the hearts of men. So morals are placed there by God. The only reason we know right from wrong is because it's in our DNA. It's impressed in our DNA. So we know right from wrong. But as we go through life and we do wrong, and we do it enough times, we start to, oh, that's no longer wrong for me. So what we have in this postmodern culture is the attitude, if it feels good, do it. Do what you want and don't let anyone tell you that you can't. And if you want it, take it. If you want it, take it. That's why most people find stealing very easy to do. Because if there's 20 bucks on a table there and no one's around, put that in the pocket. You know, no one saw me do it. You know, I can't do that. If there's $20 on the table, unless I find it in the street and there's no one around, I'm thinking, well, I'm not just going to leave it there. <laughs> you know, it's, but if it's on someone's table in their house or you know, a workplace, it's sitting underneath um, a mobile phone or something, you don't slip it out because that $20 belongs to someone. It's got ownership, you know. But that's, that's really the attitude. How many songs have been written? Do what you want to do, be what you want to be, yeah, you know. If we have no defining source of reality, if God is just some fairy tale for grown-ups, if faith in an afterlife is no more of a reality than a dream, then what is left to live for? What sort of confidence do you have after death? When we enter into death, what confidence do you guys have? Are you sure of what's going to happen then? Absolutely. If we're not sure, it means we're not reading our Bibles. The Bible tells us there's a heaven. You know, Everyone wants to go to heaven. But everyone wants to go to heaven on their terms. But the Bible tells us we've got to, we go to heaven on the Lord's terms, according to Jesus' terms, in the sense that he said, I am the door, I am the gate. And if you want to get into heaven, you enter through me. And he proved his lordship when he was raised from the dead, as Matthew was preaching in an apologetic sermon. He proved his lordship because he was raised from the dead, the the stone was rolled away, the tomb was empty, he was raised from the dead. And the most plausible argument for the truth of that claim is that he was raised from the dead. All rejections of that do not prove anything counter. The most plausible argument is that he, he lived afterwards. And just one fact alone is that 500 disciples witnessed him alive and were all prepared to die for that sighting. We're all prepared to die for the faith of knowing that he is God. He did raise from the dead. If life is just about the now, and we are all just cosmic accidents destined for annihilation, then of course the only thing left to live for is pleasure in the now, and doing whatever comes into the mind to achieve that pleasure. If this is it, then what's stopping us? What's stopping us just living the most wretched lives if we want to? If that turns us on, why not? What's making us do right? And, you know, if you get into the mindsets of, you know, uh, criminals, they'll tell you, hey, there was nothing else, so I may as well. 
You know, I was living a terrible life. I was in a terrible home. I was, you know, we were all poor. We had no food. You know, I, I could rob that bank. If someone got in the way, I could blow them away. You know, what's stopping you from doing wrong if this is it, if this is all there is? Nothing. So what will you believe? But can we trust the philosophies of this most postmodern culture? The question I ask continually when men try to sway me to their mindsets of hopelessness and despair, because I get a lot of people trying to sway me to hopelessness and despair, they want me to give up my faith in, in an afterlife in heaven with a Lord that loves me. They want me to give that up and try to sway me to believe in their hopelessness and their despair where there's, you're annihilated at death and that's it. There's, nothing, there's no more to it. And there's no chance that I would give up what I have in Christ to take on their hopeless views. So this is, this is what I think. I, which belief system will I trust? The belief system created in the minds of men. Because you think about it. Atheism and humanism and many other isms do not claim to be created in the minds of a divine creator. They will tell you that it, that tell you it is a man-invented philosophy. Well, they all say that. None of them say this is divine, what we're telling you, do they? They all will confess this is what we think. This is scientific thought of men. It's not a divine thought. Or am I going to trust the words of a book which claims to be divinely inspired and when read and studied can liberate the soul from hopelessness and release within them abundant life? So what are you going to believe? Are you going to believe divinely inspired book or its claims to be a divinely inspired book or are you going to believe the minds of men? And when I went like that, that's pretty well what it is. It's air, it's fluff, it doesn't mean anything. There's no truth or substance to it, but there's substance right there. So John 5.24 tells us, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. How could someone reject or walk away from such a glorious hope as heaven in Christ and turn to the sinful concepts and philosophies of men based on fulfilling every desire and pleasure and gain? And I know, you know, there's, I've, I've got on blogs like atheist blogs and I don't comment on them. I just go on and have a read. And... Um, uh, many of them are saying, you know, I was brought up in the Christian faith, believing in Jesus, and I don't know how I could believe that stuff, and now I'm an atheist. I'm happier. And why is he happier? Because he's doing whatever he wants. He's not restricted by having to live a holy life or a good life or a righteous life. Now he can be as sinful as he wants, and he doesn't feel any guilt or shame. So... How can we give that up? How can we give up eternal life? 2 Peter 1, 3-4 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. See that? The corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And how do we escape it? Through Christ, through the blood of Christ. We are called to participate in the divine nature and by so doing, escape being corrupted by the world. And who would confess that it's very easy to be corrupted? Yeah? Who goes out on a daily basis and then 
comes home feeling like they've been corrupted. Yeah? Everyone had that experience? Who has it nearly every day? If you go out into the world and you tend to come home. I, I sort of, I've got this feeling a lot when I get among people and we all go out. I always come home and I always repent. I always feel, I don't know why, I, I, I can't recall myself doing anything extremely sinful, but I just feel this corruptness, this filthiness. It's probably the same feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and just go, man, I need a shower. Or you go and do some work in the garden and need a shower, you know. You're not necessarily really filthy, but you, you do need to keep yourself clean. And that's why we've got to keep going back to Jesus and asking him to wash us and cleanse us. Romans 8.24 says, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? You know, if you bought yourself a nice Porsche motor car, would you hope for it any longer? If it's sitting in the drive, would you go, man, I really hope that I can get a Porsche? You don't hope for it, do you? You hope for what you don't have. You hope for what is unseen. We have a hope in an unseen God who can be seen in what he has been made. Also, we hope in a God who sent his son, his one and only son, to die for men and women so that they can be saved in his name. We hope in Jesus who came and secular history cannot deny his appearance. Can they live? And he lived the life of sinlessness, laid down his life on a cross, all for us. And Romans three twenty four to twenty five says, "For we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus." And I'm just going to add. I added here in yellow. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. Remember, over the last year, I've always talked about the blood, the power of the blood. It's through faith in his blood that we have been atoned. Through faith in what he did on the cross that we have been atoned for our sin. If you were convicted of some terrible crime before you were led away to be imprisoned on death row, just say you, were, you did the most terrible thing, or they're leading you away to prison and death row awaits you. And then someone is sitting over in the corner or someone comes up and says, see that guy over there? If you go up to him and just say, look, I'll follow you, I'll, I'll live according to what you say, as long as he's not, uh, he's not asking unreasonable expectations of you. But this guy can, has paid, he's ransomed you, he's paid all your fines, uh, he, and he will take you away from this place right now and you'll not go into prison and you'll not go to death row. Now, how many people in their right minds would reject that offer? How many people would reject that guy standing over there? Who would? No one could reject it. You know what we have? We have a, a Lord that's paid the ransom for our sin. He's standing there. He's offering it open-handed. He says this, For all of sin and fall short of, for the glory of God and are justified freely. We are justified free. He's paid the ransom. He stands there with his arms open saying, Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden. He's saying, come to me. And you know what this postmodern world's doing? They're throwing mud in his face. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You, you claim to be the truth. You claim to have come to offer the truth. You don't even exist. You're not real. It must 
hurt Jesus beyond words. Just how he's been rejected by mankind on such a mass scale. But you know what? Even if everyone on earth fell away, I'm still going to believe in Jesus. I don't care what they say. They can think up every great scheme, every great concept, every great imagination they want. But the truth shall set us free. And the truth is only found in Jesus. If you can turn in your Bibles, if we can turn to John 18. This is a very interesting section of scripture. So John 18, 33. Everyone there? It says, Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him. And remember, Pilate's judging him um, and had the power to put him on the cross and sentenced him to death. So Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus said, Is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? I like that answer. And then Pilate said, Do you think I'm a Jew? In the sense of saying that I would make this up. Uh, It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? What have you done? He's just saying, I'm just the judge. I'm hearing what they're saying, and now I want to know the truth. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth, and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Get that? Everyone on the side of truth. If you don't believe in an absolute truth, you're not on the side of truth, and you can't believe in Jesus if you don't believe in absolute truth. But everyone on the side of truth listens to Jesus. And then Pilate's classic response, what is truth? And with that, I'm drawing again on Neil Ryan's comments uh, upon this scripture, which was in the same sermon, Hope, uh, in a postmodern world. He says, don't miss this. We have Pilate. He's in the seat of power. He's the kingdom of Rome. And we have Jews, God's people, appealing to that power. And in the middle of all that is Jesus. Right there in the middle. Jews on one side. Rome on the other. And right in the middle is Jesus. And he's just really like, you can imagine the situation. Pilate doesn't know what to do. He doesn't want to crucify him. So what does he do? He goes and does this act, you know, washes his hands. He says, it's whatever you want to do. And I, I don't want to convict the man. But he was pressured. Pilate has no idea what is happening. But he asks two telling questions. Verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? What a question. Is he king? I'm going to let that question hang. It's haunted humanity for 2,000 years. It begs to be answered by every generation. It needs to be answered today. It's the one question that stands in the way of our postmodern push for secularization. Is he king? And that is the question today, isn't it? Pastor Nuran continues. then, Then comes Pilate's second great question, which is verse 38. What is truth? If you think about it, the only truth Pilate knew is Caesar's truth. The only truth he knows is the truth of scourging and nails and crosses. The only truth he knows is that to oppose the kingdom of Rome is to perish. That's the truth that he holds. So he's going, what is truth? Because all he sees is 
the truth that he knows is, is terrible. It's misery for so many. Pastor Neil wisely asserts that the search for hope in a postmodern world is a search for a king. But there is a twist. The king has come to reveal truth. That's the great sticking point for the modern culture. The king's come to reveal truth. So when we search for the king, for a king or the king, we also will find the truth in the one person. So when we search for truth in this postmodern culture, we will always and without fail come face to face with the cross of Christ. Without fail, we will come to the cross and we'll have to make a decision. You know, every one of us has to make that decision. When we stand before the cross, we've got to make a decision. Is it for me or not? Did Christ die for me on that cross or not? Neil Ryan reveals that the cross in the Roman Empire stood as the ultimate reminder of ultimate power the power of life and death. And in a sense, it still stands for that, doesn't it? In the cross is the power of life and death. Accept it, you have life. Reject it, and there's death. It, that is, the, is that place, that point. John Stott wrote, Crucifixion is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced, for it deliberately delayed death until the maximum torture had been, had been inflicted. So it's a terrible curse. The cross is a curse beyond words. There's no greater form of punishment that's ever been placed on mankind. And Jesus, our Lord, went and hung on that, that, that symbol that contained the most gruesome levels of torture you could possibly experience. The cross represented to the people of that day everything that is abominable, repulsive, offensive, detestable, and shameful. Every despicable thing that can be imagined is encapsulated in the cross. And if you think about it, Isaiah's, I think it's 53's representation of Christ is that he was so disfigured when he was hanging on that cross that he was beyond the image of a man. You couldn't even tell he was a man any longer. He was that disfigured. People say that Mel Gibson, you know, really exaggerated and was far too graphic. It wasn't that bad. You know, he was far not graphic enough. He wasn't graphic enough. Jesus could not be recognized as a man. Or if you could imagine this, and it's a horrible thing, Jesus was just a lump of bleeding meat on the cross. Just mashed. You know, if you, if you get one, a person hit you in the side of the face really hard, does it swell up? Now you imagine a crown of thorns and someone beating you on the side of the head with staffs how long before your face would just go like that? It'd be all disfigured, wouldn't it? And now that happened to his whole body. His body was scourged that terribly that all his, most of his skin would have been nearly ripped off. So that's a pretty, that is how gruesome and, and terrible was the scourge of the cross. And Neil Ryan said, can you see the genius of God? That he took that same symbol and literally turned it upside down and made it into an everlasting symbol of his unwavering and unconditional love. He took a symbol that used to represent the, the most terrible things to the Roman people, and, he, and he, it now represents to us the most wonderful reminder of what Jesus did for us. So now when someone wears a cross, it represents hope, doesn't it? If you've got a cross on, it represents hope. You know, I wear a cross on my heart. 
I have hope in eternal life in Christ. And that is a wonderful hope. Each and every one of us must make a decision, and that decision is with regard to what are we going to do with the cross? What are we going to do? Paul made that decision that changed him forever. And he said this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a famous quote from Galatians 2.20 that Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this sermon. Thank you that you have um, helped me to impart this this message today, which is an uncovering religion message uh, to do with our modern culture of postmodernism. And I, I pray that everyone that heard it and everyone that will hear it in the future will hopefully be able to see the hopelessness of, of, that, of that cultural uh, belief that there is no absolute truth and that atheism is the truth and, and this sort of thing. Lord, I just pray that, that, that the hopelessness and despair that those hopes give will become quickly evident to those and that, Lord, that we will set our eyes on eternity, we'll set our eyes on the kingdom of God and we'll, we will look for the reality of an afterlife in Christ. And I pray that multitudes of people will come to see you as, as Lord and Savior and will receive the salvation that you died to give them on that cross. So, Lord, we make a decision today. We look at the cross and to us it represents hope. To us, it represents life everlasting in you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you. Thank you for going to the cross and giving your life for us. And we uh, give you all the glory. And uh, we ask that you'll be with us this week and bless everything that we do this week and uh, help, help us uh, in our workplace, guide us, keep us well, uh, protect us on the roads, protect us in every situation. And we pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen.